0: and welcome to the first episode of the Art Crime Cast. My name is Nana Gangadze and thank you for tuning in. Before we jump to the very interesting topic for this episode, I just want to briefly introduce this project and tell you a little bit about myself. As mentioned, my name is Nana and I'm currently an undergraduate art history major at American University in Washington, D.C. As anyone listening who knows me in real life can attest, I live and breathe art. I started this podcast as a summer project for myself as a way of sharing some of what I know and some very interesting and lesser-known stories about art. With each episode focusing on a different event or case, this pod will be exploring prominent instances of art crime, theft, forgery, and the like. Given art's value being what it is, there is plenty throughout history to work off of. You may be wondering why art crime is what I decided to focus on. For one, I don't believe anyone has ever made a podcast focusing on this topic specifically. Secondly, in my voracious reading of books about art, I've come across many stories of these kinds of crimes. Many are jaw-dropping stories, and the booty in many of these cases is extremely fragile, valuable old works. So when reading about the dramatic heists and dogged detective work, one's heart pounds just a little faster because one knows how easily a work can be damaged and how awful it is to lose art. The singular fact that each artwork, especially a painting on canvas, which is what most people think of when they think of art, is one of a kind and cannot be replaced, is the key here. So I felt that these stories, unbelievable as they can be, but all true, would make an engaging and unique topic for a podcast. I hope that you agree. Going off of that, I should issue a brief disclaimer, and this relates to today's episode topic, so stay with me. With this project, by no means am I romanticizing or turning into folk heroes the people I profile here or their acts. I think it could be easy to fall into a little admiring state when one hears incredible stories such as these, but I want to make it very clear that as an avowed art lover, I deplore anyone involved with theft, fencing, trafficking, forgery, swindling, scamming, or anything like that of art. Art is something made to be seen. When a piece is stolen, especially from a museum, it is not just a crime against the person or institution it is stolen from, it is a crime against society because the work is removed from its rightful place as something to be appreciated by hosts of people. This may be harder to see when, say, a wealthy collector who paid what seems like a crazy sum of money for a work is stolen from. But they did pay, they do take good care of these works, and the theft from them is an affront to the entire art world as well as to the legacy of the artists whose work they are preserving. Forger takes this even further, directly insulting the sanctity of history and the artist's oeuvre by inserting things into the canon that were just never there. Official government reports place art crime as the third highest grossing criminal trade in the world behind drugs and weapons trafficking, though it is extremely difficult to track. Art thieves, foragers, and the like are not good people. Nor are they some sort of James Bond villain-esque, art-obsessed, white-gloved member of the uber-rich, commissioning cat burglars to steal work for their personal collection, or even doing it themselves. Such a character has never been found in real life, and he is a product of fiction or our overzealous imagination. The truth is, most art criminals are low-level thugs and thieves, often not very smart. They are, or are connected to, greater criminal enterprises of the worst possible people. They deserve no romanticization. Continue to let these facts simmer in the back of your mind as we go along, and let us begin this inaugural episode. The topic, I think, was a natural place to begin, and it is one of the most lucrative art thefts ever committed, an unsolved mystery that has plagued the art world for 27 years. The 1990 robbery of the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Estimates of the value of the works stolen clock in around $500 million, and they include pieces by such masters as Vermeer, Rembrandt, Manet, Degas, and Flake. More about the specific work stolen a little later. And if you find this episode interesting and would like to learn read a more thorough account of the case and the possible culprits, I suggest the book The Gardner Heist, The True Story of the World's Largest Unsolved Art Theft by Ulrich Boser. To set the scene for you, I think it would be best to begin with a little background on the museum itself, since it is a pretty unique institution. Unfortunately, I've never been able to visit myself, but I would very much like to, as it is not only an interesting art museum, but one of a kind architecturally as well. The museum, then called Fanway Court, was opened in 1903 and contains the collection of Isabella Stewart Gardner and her, by then deceased husband, John L. Gardner. The Gardners were very rich and prominent members of society in their age. Isabella herself was extremely eccentric, a in her own right in Boston society, as well as a learned and art-loving woman ahead of her time. She was known for being brash and bold, wearing extravagant daring outfits to society events. She gambled, raced cars, and traveled around the world quite adventurously. She was a tabloid staple and had no problem with this fact. When she was 51 years old, her father died and she inherited a great deal of money, so she decided to start her own museum for her collection, which was a dream of hers. The building itself was modeled after a 15th century Venetian palace, and as you can expect, Isabella herself was deeply involved in the planning and building of it. She spent a year after the building was complete arranging the collection. In her mind, it was to be a place where paintings and sculptures could deeply inspire people and move them. For this reason, the museum isn't like your typical gallery with the plain white walls. Rooms are arranged with works hung purposefully and sometimes unconventionally, surrounded by period objects and furniture, making it feel more like a personal residence. Sometimes, pieces with very little in common are placed beside each other, like a Venetian dresser holding an art deco sculpture on top of it. Each room has its own theme, such as Chinese logia, Gothic Room, or Yellow Room. In this way, the museum itself is like a work of art. There are over 2,500 objects in the collection, ranging from Far East Antiquities to paintings by artists contemporary to Isabella's time. Besides the furniture, antiquities, manuscripts, china, and so on, the world-class collection of paintings includes works by artists such as Rembrandt, Michelangelo, Barticelli, Raphael, Degas, Velasquez, Manet, Whistler, and Sargent, among others. Heard of them? So, big names and very valuable works. In her will, Isabella stipulated that nothing should ever be moved or rearranged after her death to preserve this unique design. Even this document contains her signature wit and sass. For example, she stipulates that anyone with the given name Isabella can get into the gardener for free forever. Let us fast forward almost 100 years now to March 18, 1990. It is half past one on a chilly Boston evening, or really morning. A couple of teens who had been drinking at a St. Patrick's Day party on the street near the museum recall seeing two men sitting in a small hatchback car in Beak policemen's uniforms. These were the culprits, two men whose identities to this day are a mystery to the public. The men approached one of the museum's side entrances and pressed the button for the buzzer. A security guard, Richard Abath, answered via the intercom. Abath was a 23-year-old dropout of the Berkeley College of Music at the time, and a musician for whom the guarding gig was just moonlighting. His orders were to never let anyone into the museum at night, but the men he saw via the security camera looked like and claimed to be cops inquiring about a disturbance in the museum courtyard. Abath, unsure if his orders applied to the police, let them in. The men dressed as police came to the watch desk and asked if any other guards were on duty, and when Abath answered yes, they had him call the man down as well via walkie-talkie. While the other guard, Richard Hellman, made his way down, one of the alleged police officers told Abath that he looked familiar and that they believed they had a warrant out for him. Abath stepped away from the desk and the panic button and handed over his ID. And when Hellman, the other guard, arrived, the intruders shoved the two against the wall and handcuffed them. They informed the bewildered Abath and Hellman that this was a robbery and that they gave them the classic or cliche, don't cause trouble and you won't get hurt line. Then, they duct taped the eyes and mouths of the young guards, and handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. Their wallets were removed, and the guards threatened to hunt them down if they talked. At this point, there was no way to notify the real police, and no hidden security cameras. Motion detectors were the only way the 81 minutes of part expected, part confusing activities on the part of the intruders were recorded. It wasn't until 8 in the morning that anybody knew of what had occurred. After they had subdued the guards, the intruders, who, for all intents and purposes, had their run of the place then, made their way upstairs to the Dutch Room. Their first attempt to take a work was interrupted by a motion alarm that was meant to detract visitors from getting too close to works. This they smashed. They tried to take Rembrandt's 1629 self-portrait, a painting, but unable to extricate it from its heavy frame, they left it on the floor. Their next target was The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, also by Rembrandt, which I'll talk more about in a moment. With brutal irresponsibility, they smashed the painting out of its frame and sliced the canvas from its stretcher, or the wooden skeleton over which the canvas is stretched. The next work they grabbed was A Lady and Gentleman in Black from 1633, then thought to also be a Rembrandt, but whose authorship is now questioned by some people. Then, Johannes Vermeer's The Concert from the late 1650s, an extremely valuable work when you consider that only 34 works by Vermeer have survived, identified, and authenticated to this day. It may be worth as much as $300 alone. The thieves picked up the pace after this, grabbing another Dutch work, Huvart Flank's Landscape with an Obelisk, a stamp-side self-portrait by Rembrandt, and a four-foot-tall ancient Chinese cup called a Gu from approximately the year 12 or 1100. At this point, it was nearly two in the morning. They entered another small gallery across the museum, snatched five sketches by Degas, their framing also quickly smashed. A more curious choice was an eagle-shaped finial, or end knob, from a staff holding a Napoleonic flag. It was possible they thought it was made of gold, or perhaps it was just a giddy trophy. They descended the stairs and grabbed the last work, Chez Tortoni, an 1878-1880 portrait of a man in a suit and a top hat by early modern master Edouard Menet not to be confused with the Impressionist Claude Monet. The frame for this work they left in desk chair of the security director's office, like some sort of demented calling card or taunt. There they also grabbed the cassettes from the video recorders that filmed them entering and the data from the motion trackers. Luckily, this data was saved onto a hard drive that they were unaware of. Their last visit to check on the bound guards occurred then too, and they told them that the museum would be hearing from them in about a year. It never did. At 2.41 a.m., they exited from the side door, taking two trips to get their spoils, 13 works of art mounting to one of the largest robberies of art in history into some sort of getaway vehicle. And that was the last time the works were in their home of 87 years. If the choices of the thieves seem curious to you, you are not the only one who thinks so. On their way to the Degas sketches and the finial, the thieves literally ran past masterworks by artists like Raphael and Rubens. There were sketches by Michelangelo in the short gallery where they did some of their thievery. Just one floor up, Titian's masterpiece, The Rape of Europa hung among works by other artists whose paintings demand great sums. Why didn't they take those? Why, if they had the run of the place, did they not take more work or stay for longer? Theoretically, they could have cleaned out all the masterpieces if they had the means. And if they were trying to sell the paintings that they stole, Why rip them from their stretchers in so careless a way, leaving flakes of paint and canvas on the museum floor? Works that old can be extremely brittle. They would be seriously damaged by rolling, as one can imagine. Such damage could easily destroy their value. Yet in terms of big ticket items, some of the works they did grab, which are still missing to this day, as I have mentioned, line up. Vermeer's The Concert was one of the first major works acquired by Isabella Stewart Gardner, back when he was a much less well-known and revered artist. It is nearly priceless now and impossible to sell anywhere but the black market, given its renown. Eight times as many works are attributed to Rembrandt than to Vermeer, but Storm on the Sea of Galilee was Rembrandt's only seascape that we know of. He is the undisputed king of the Dutch Golden Age, and so the fact that the thieves made off with three of the four of his work that they tried to move makes sense. These facts coupled with the fairly smooth and intimidating way in which they gained entrance to the museum and subdued the guards, have led many investigators to conclude that these were not expert art thieves, but they did seem to be experienced criminals with a detailed advanced plan. Beyond that, the sureties become much fewer and far between. Before I go into the various theories and leads on the case, let's talk a little bit about the stolen works themselves, specifically the paintings. If you want to see images of them, you can find them on this pod's blog, the theartcrimecast.wordpress.com, or just by doing a Google image search, since we've all got our phones in our back pockets in this day and age. The gardener currently has a $5 million reward for information leading to the recovery of the works in good condition, but it has yet to be claimed. Cherie Tortoni, from 1878 to 1880, is a portrait by Edouard Manet and a very much cl- classic work of the groundbreaking French artist. It is a portrait of a well-dressed man leaning forward slightly with a writing instrument in his hand and a glass of amber liquid on the desk beside him. He looks at us almost expectantly, like perhaps we are dictating something to him or we have interrupted his work and he would like to know why. What is he thinking? It is a painting full of quiet mystery, the subject's ambiguous expression, like much of the rest of the work, is executed in a flick-like painterly brush strokes, giving the background an almost abstract feel and rejecting the academic convention of a completely finished surface and slavish attention to detail. Manet was one of the first artists of his day to really embrace this style, and this work, like many others of his, focuses on urban life and everyday scenes, controversial at the time when most, the most lauded type of painting was huge heroic history works. For this focus on the fleeting and contingent, as poet Charles Baudelaire described, Manet was largely rejected, mocked, and laughed at in official Salon exhibitions. But he had his fans, and is known as one of the direct predecessors to the Impressionists. Loss of this work and its meditation on the fleeting moment is a great shame. Then there are the Dutch masterworks. It is believed by many that the thieves took landscape with an obelisk by Houvart Flink because they thought it was... a Rembrandt. Indeed, it doesn't look too different from many of the master's other works. Flink was a student of Rembrandt, hence the similarity. Even Isabella thought so when she bought the work. Rembrandt had many, many students in his studio, and over the years a lot of their work was attributed to him, whether by mistake or on purpose. To this day, scholars and experts are still sorting out his exact oeuvre. Modern estimates acknowledge this to be something like 300 paintings, double that in etchings, and several thousand drawings down from earlier estimates of 600 plus paintings. We can see evidence of this model, modern critical reassessment of the master's catalog in the fact that the authenticity of one of the works stolen by the Gardner thieves, A Lady and Gentleman in Black, has been questioned by leading scholars in subsequent years. While neither Flink's Landscape or Lady and Gentleman by artist unknown are by Rembrandt, they are both still beautiful works typifying the expressive landscape and dignified portrait genres respectively of the Dutch golden age. The two genuine Rembrandts stolen by the thieves are a truly painful loss to the Gardner collection. Rembrandt, who was born in the Netherlands and worked there his whole life, was a very prolific artist and a man who went through many personal ups and downs in his personal and financial life. His works were revolutionary and bold for the dramatic lighting, painterly application of pigment, and the psychological insight he was able to make in his depictions of people. Self-portraits were one way he did this. Over 90 are known to exist etchings, paintings, and drawings, making him history's most prolific self-portraitist. Some are tiny, often amusing etchings of himself imitating a variety of expressions, and some are finished and regal, three-quarter view oil paintings in which he does not hold back on showing his age in later years, a testament to his dedication to showing honest realism. Two of the works stolen by the gardener thieves contain self-portraits. One is a tiny etching about the size of a postage stamp showing him staring straight at the viewer without much discernible motion and his hair flying all over. I highly suggest looking up his self-portraits if you are curious. They even have their own Wikipedia page and are a real treat to go through. Then there is The Storm on the Sea of Galilee from 1633. It is an early work, painted with Rembrandt was 27, and depicts Christ and the disciples on the, in the midst of a gale on the Sea of Galilee. The story, as told in the Gospels, describes how, while a storm almost overtook the ship, Christ commanded the winds to stop and the waters to calm, and they did. It is one of his documented miracles. The moment Rembrandt chose to depict here is one of incredibly high drama. The ship collides head-on with a wave as the disciples struggle to steady the rudder and sails in the fierce winds, and several in the back pray and appeal to Christ for help. It shows a masterful handling of chiaroscuro, or the technique of using strong light and dark contrasts, and the loose style of brushwork the artist was cultivating in the spraying of a dramatically white sea foam. As mentioned, it does contain a self-portrait. Rembrandt depicts himself as a disciple on the ship, the only one staring directly at the viewer as he holds his hat steady to his head and onto a rope for support. This is not the only time Rembrandt would insert himself in historical depictions. In his Raising of the Cross, he stands right at the feet of Christ nailed to the cross and depicts himself being one of the ones who raised it. Pretty audacious, but that's classic Rembrandt. Returning to Storm, it bears repeating again that this is the Dutch master's only known seascape and a dramatic, intriguing work. We know about as much about the prolific Rembrandt as we know little about the mysterious Vermeer, who worked in the Netherlands in the same century as Rembrandt, except in the city of Delft, where he was also born. Little is certain about his life. He had at least one patron whose identity identity is unknown, but it is believed that he was never particularly famous outside of Delft in his lifetime. For a long time in history, he was basically unknown. It is not till the 19th century that he was rediscovered and a catalogue of his was put together, though the number of works attributed to him has been willed down over time. He did not have a very happy life, little as we know about it. He was extremely deliberate and slow in his process of working, being his income was small and when he moved moved back in with his mother-in-law, his wife and his 11 children. When war broke out between France and the Netherlands and the economy collapsed, the family fell further into debt. After he died at age 43, shortly following this, his wife told the bankruptcy court that the stress of financial pressures is what killed him. The few works that we do have of his are world famous for a reason. They are meticulously and stunningly crafted. Most are interior scenes full of small, unspoken mysteries and contemplative moments. His handling of light is particularly remarkable, showing a unique softness and natural illumination. The concert, a work stolen from the Gardener, is one of the excellent one of these excellent works that hints at a narrative but never gives way more than whispers. It depicts three figures off to the right of the room. Two of them, a man and a woman, playing instruments and another woman singing or about to sing. But it is not clear if it is so simple a scene. Works from this era and this time period are often full of symbolism and subtle, subtle moralizing messages. Often the interior of a room, its contents cleanliness or lack thereof, revealed something about the subjects. In this case, the discarded sheet music, instruments, and large draped table in the dark foreground make us wonder what led up to this little scene that makes up the main subject. And the paintings above the women, One shows a landscape, and the other is a work called Procurus, owned by Vermeer's mother-in-law. It shows a lecherous man, a busty young woman, and the eponymous crone pointing to her palm, presumably arranging a liaison. What does this mean in the context of the concert? Is it included to make us question the virtue of the singing woman, or the relationship between the two, two or more of the figures? As in many other Vermeers, nothing is spoken outright. It rewards contemplation and theorizing. Sadly, however, such a privilege has been wrested from us by the thieves. This is what I mean when I say the real victims of art crimes such as this is society at large, especially in the case of museum thefts. These works have been missing for my entire life, and if they exist in their proper state anymore is unknown. Calling such an event a tragedy may sound overdramatic to some, but when you're talking about works like these, so rare and unique, with nothing like them out there in the world, you have to kind of see it in that way. Now, to what is possibly the most intriguing aspect of this case, its unsolved nature. The problematic thing about describing the investigation is that a great deal of what the FBI has discovered about the case is kept from the public. In 2013, they announced that they knew who the culprits of the heist were, but their identities were kept secret, and no one has ever been charged. Two years ago, in 2015, the agency revealed why. The culprits they identified are dead. They did not provide their names. The investigation continues to this day, and is active, the trail the FBI were following earlier went cold around 2003. Supposedly, the works were transported to the Philadelphia region via circles of organized crime and shopped around, but authorities confess they do not know where the art is now and they're still accepting tips. So while the thieves themselves were never caught, the booty they got away with may still be out there. So, who were they? Here I'm going to go over some of the suspects that have been investigated over the years. Nothing has been proven, and while the FBI remains silent on the identity of the culprits, we can only draw our own conclusions from the data at hand. One major theory is that mob-affiliated local criminals orchestrated and committed the heist. Several people from local groups at the time fit the bill, including being now deceased. The subjects were all connected, The suspects were all connected to an associate named Carmelo Merlino, who ran a local repair shop slash front. It is said that he bragged to informants at one point about recovering the works and getting the reward. In 1999, he was caught in an FBI sting and eventually died in prison as a result in 2005. He was offered a deal in exchange for the stolen works, but he never produced them. Some of his associates that were probably involved include local criminals George Reisfelder, who overdosed on cocaine in 1999, and Leonard DiMuzio, who was shot to death in the same year, and David Turner, who is currently in prison. Turner had a nasty reputation when he was out on the streets, linked to robberies and the number of brutal murders. His release is scheduled for 2025 when he will be 57 years old. The FBI's belief is that the works landed in the hands of a mafia tied bank robber named Robert Gorante. He died in 2004. Seven years ago, his wife told the FBI that Guarente gave two of the works to a mobster in Connecticut named Robert Gentile. Gentile is 80 years old and in poor health, awaiting trial in jail for gun charges thanks to a sting. He says he knows nothing about the missing art, though it is alleged that he once offered to sell some of the works for half a million each to an undercover FBI agent. Another theory that still holds water is the idea that Richard Abath, the musician night guard who was 23 at the time of the heist, was and the one who ultimately let the culprits in, did, he did so purposefully. The claims of the so-called police that convinced him to open the doors had some merit. Abath said that he knew that pranksters could have climbed into the museum property via fence, so it was possible that there really was a disturbance in the courtyard. To this day, Abath, who is now 50 years old, maintains that he was not involved in the robbery but that prosecutors told him that he has never been eliminated as a suspect. There are several reasons why their rationale makes sense. Abath was in the band and occasionally showed up to work under the influence of various substances and once let some buddies into the museum for an impromptu and illicit party. He claimed that the reason he left the desk and the panic button when the themes asked him to was because he wanted to avoid arrest. However, the motion sensors that tracked the thieves' whereabouts throughout the museum did not record them entering the gallery where Manet's Cher Tortoni hung. All that was caught was a two-round made by Abath on his guard walk beforehand. They also picked up that he briefly opened the side door shortly before he buzzed in the thieves. Abath maintained that he opened the door before the robbery to check if the door was locked. Authorities have also released a video in the last few years that captures Abath letting a man identified as unauthorized into the museum the night before it was robbed, who spoke to him at the desk for a few minutes before leaving. Was this a prep run for the robbery? Was the door opening some sort of single signal to the perps? Did he steal the Manet? Abath admits that this looks somewhat suspicious, investigators say that his lifestyle at the time of the robbery, basically being a broke musician at a college dropout who admitted that he openly complained about the bad security at the museum to strangers at parties, could have attracted the type of people who may have pulled off the heist. However, he maintains that he did not know of anyone who used this information to stage the robbery. He holds that he was just trying to avoid trouble with who he genuinely thought was the police, and he can't explain the missing motion sensor information. Abath is now 46 years old and lives modestly in Vermont. If he was somehow involved or took the Manet, his lifestyle does not reflect it, leaving the f- frame on the security director's chair would have been a bold move as well. Stats show that the inside help plays a role in a staggering number of art theft cases, which is possibly why authorities have seemed to keep an eye on Abath since the robbery took place. As of 2013, he was working on a book about the heist. Another theory that com- comes from a 1997 event that seemed like it was a breakthrough, but was quickly revealed to be dashed hopes. In August of that year, a reporter from the Boston Herald named Tom Mashburg caught onto the story of a small time criminal and antique store owner named William Youngsworth III. When Youngsworth was in the holding cell of a Randolph, Massachusetts police department in that year for a guns charge, he claimed that he'd get the painting stolen from the gardener in exchange for the $5 million reward, job charges against him, and freedom from prison from an imprisoned legendary art thief named Miles Connor. Police were not so convinced because they knew Youngsworth was low on the totem pole, but Mashberg was interested. A driver picked up Mashberg a few weeks after he asked for proof from Youngsworth and drove him to an old warehouse. The reporter was escorted upstairs where the driver removed, purportedly storm on the sea from a bin, unfurled it and showed it to him and indicated that the rest of the works were in tubes stored with it. Mashberg said that he saw the torn sides and Rembrandt's signature. A few days later it was front page in the Boston Herald with the headline We've Seen It. This launched a serious negotiation between Youngsworth and authorities, including Youngsworth producing a vial of paint chips that the Herald investigated and confirmed was from a Dutch old master work. It seemed like everyone was so close, yet the deal-making fell apart. For one, authorities were always doubtful of Youngsworth. Without hard evidence, they were only willing to offer him partial immunity. Youngsworth demanded full immunity, and never stopped accusing the feds of harassment. He was also convicted of a car theft charge and it was announced that the paint fragments were not from Storm, but from a Dutch work of the 17th century, including possibly Vermeer. At that point, however, negotiations were over. Tom Mashberg now believes what he was shown in 1997 was a replica. Youngsworth lives in Massachusetts and refuses requests for interviews about the robbery. A rather more well-known name linked to the robbery is that of James Whitey Bulger, the recently apprehended and notorious Boston gangster. At the time of the robbery, Bolger was the big man on campus in the Boston underworld and an FBI informant. It was thought that there was little chance he didn't at least know who did it, given his position. A close associate of his claimed seven years ago that Bolger and his people were trying to find the works to use as a bargaining chip for the future. Bolger, on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, and with warrants out on him for many crimes, including murder, was caught in 2011. He has been on the run for 16 years, and with him, feds found over $800,000 of cash and many dozens of weapons, but no Gardner paintings. He is now serving a life sentence at age 87. Another gang-related figure who has been theorized to be connected to the robbery is Robert Donati, a mob associate of a mafia man named Vincent Ferrara, and this theory has quite a dark ending to it. Notorious mafia, mafia capo, or made man, Ferrara, was in prison at the time of the robbery. It is said that Donati visited Ferrara in prison after the heist and said that he stole the paintings with the intent of using them to win freedom for Ferrara, some show of loyalty. Donati apparently also said that given the intensity of the manhunt, he was going to lay low for a while. In 1991, his body was found in the trunk of a car near his home, viciously beaten and stabbed. His killers were never found. Art thief Miles Connors Jr., previously mentioned, who was also in prison at the time of the robbery, also claimed that he and Donati talked about the museum's then Lindsey security and one's case the place before they, he was in prison. He also said in his biography that an old friend of his named David Hockton visited him in prison after the heist and said that Donati was one of the perpetrators. He also said that Donati was going to use the works to get Connor out. As for Vincent Ferrara, he was released in 2005. Connor got out in 2000, but he had a massive heart attack in 98 that seriously impaired his long-term memory. Hawkins died of a heart attack in the same year. Given that it has been almost 30 years since the heist occurred, the statute of limitations on the crime has expired and the thieves can no longer face charges for the robbery. The FBI has stated that anyone voluntarily returning the artwork would also not get charged, but anyone caught with stolen items can be. So where are the works? And most importantly, what state are they in? As mentioned before, works as old as con- the concert or storm on a sea of Galilee are extremely fragile. They can be as brittle as potato chips. Rolling them could cause major issues. The paint could start cracking or falling off in chunks. Similarly, oil paintings such as these need to be kept at a certain stable humidity and temperature or further damage could occur. Given that the themes already damaged them majorly with their rough slicing and removing of the stretchers, and the fact that they were probably stored in hiding areas in card trunks that are far from the optimum environments for such delicate materials, there is a distinct possibility that they are highly damaged. Thieves and thugs do not typically have curatorial training, after all. If there is anything to be learned from that awful night 27 years ago, it is the value of good museum security. The American Association of Museums revamped its security guidelines after the heist. More emphasis is put on trained and well-vetted security staff, though they are still a rather underpaid group considering the importance of their work. Most like make barely above minimum wage. The problem is, most museums are perennially scrapped for cash. When it comes down to the choice of spending money on their collection or preparing for a hypothetical event that they pray will never happen, well, one can guess that often they spend on the latter rather reluctantly. As far as the gardener itself goes, they have taken this seriously. There is new tech, video cameras for the inside watched by trained guards and night vision ones monitoring the streets around. They make sure that there is a guard in every room and that the guards have to reactivate key cards more regularly. They also have raised the salary for them. It is still little but more than many other museums pay. The gardener has pained too much not to take this precaution. Also, if anyone ever tries to return forged versions of the work, it is doubtful they will have much success. Conservators at the museum have extensive notes, photographs, and x-rays and other documents on each work detailing every scratch and scrape in every inch of the canvas. They will be sure if a work is anything but a genuine article. All in all, one can only hope that this theft will remain the largest in history and nothing on the scale ever happens again. If you visit the gardener today, you can find the empty frames of the stolen works still hanging on the wall. Depending on how one looks at it, they are either a somber memorial marker of the event or a little physical symbol of hope that the works will one day come home and take their rightful place on the wall just where Isabella wants them to be. I suppose the best we can hope for is that someone, somewhere out there, who has the work, realizes this fact, and has a change of heart. This has been episode one of the Art Crime Cast. I'm Nana, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you did, please subscribe and feel free to leave a review. I'm hoping to have the next episode focusing on a major instance of forgery in the last century, up soon, so stay tuned. As mentioned, you can find pictures of all the mentioned artworks, as well as a transcript for this episode up on this pod's blog, TheArtCrimeCast.wordpress.com. The intro and outro music for this episode is the Symphonic Etudes, Opus 13, by Robert Schumann. Courtesy of MuseOpen.org.